For those of us that are remaining, I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Hear now the very word of God that is sufficient, authoritative, and completely without error. 1 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open it up to our hearts and our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know the feeling. When something big's about to happen, or something you feel unprepared for. That where your tongue gets dry. Your palms start to sweat a little bit. Maybe it's the first time you got up and did public speaking. Maybe it's before you had to take a big exam. Maybe it's you were about to undertake something you hadn't done before. A new school. A new camp. You're not sure what's going to happen. You feel out of your element and you don't really know what to do. Well, what I've just described is also oftentimes, isn't it, for most Christians, myself included, the experience we can have when we have opportunities to testify to the Lord's goodness in our lives, when we have opportunities to give witness to the gospel. We're not sure we have all the right answers. We're not sure we're going to say it the right way, and the palms sweat, and the throat gets scratchy. It's especially true this time of year, isn't it? Because you're much more likely to have someone just walk up to you out of the blue and mention something about God or something about Jesus just simply because it's related to the season of the year. And maybe you felt this week, last week, that pit in the bottom of your stomach, that sweating of the palms, not sure if you can give the right answer for what God has done to a world, for you and for his people. This is a real-life problem, and Peter understands it. It was a real-life problem here with his flock in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. And so Peter tells his flock, and he tells us, what is involved with when we have opportunities to testify to the Lord's goodness. He wants to tell us how to give a good answer, and a good answer that involves both words and deeds. It's something that should be built into the life of a Christian. Not something you trot out every end of December or every end of March, beginning of April. It's something that's built into the life of a Christian. 
You see, what Peter says is there should be certain characteristics about you that you should cultivate that will help you to testify. He gives us three pairs here. The first is, he says to us, be confident and don't worry. Be confident and don't worry. The second thing he says is, have faith and don't be afraid. And the third thing he says is, give an answer and don't be ashamed. So we're called to be confident, to have faith, and to have an answer. And to reject worry, fear, and shame. That's Peter's call to us here this morning. So let us then take a look at the beginning of verse 13, where Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter begins by telling us to be confident. To be confident and do not worry. And that confidence comes from a confidence in the Lord. It's not just something we pretend to have, like whistling in the dark. You've probably done that, haven't you? You try and trick yourself out of being afraid. Or trick yourself out of worry by thinking about other things. But Peter doesn't say that. He says, have confidence in the Lord. He says, who could possibly harm you if you're doing good? Now remember, there's a context for this. We looked at it last week in verses 8 through 12. And that context is real suffering. You remember we talked about how very uncomfortable it is when someone else does evil to us? What are we called to do? To do good. Blessing. Not evil in return. When someone says bad things about us, very strong word here, reviling us, what are we called to do? It's not to do one-upsmanship. It's in turn to bless You see, Peter is now explaining what it means to do good. If you are doing good, if you are following the Lord, you can have confidence because no one can harm you. If you are doing what God has commanded in this passage just before what we're looking at, then the Lord goes before you and no one can harm you. You see, Peter is reminding us of something that we can often forget. And that is that God is the real judge. We forget that at times. We think of all the intermediate judges and opinions and things that are going on. And we forget that God is the final judge. And that he has delivered us, not just from temporal difficulties, but he has finally delivered us. That we will be in glory with him. That we will live as the Lord Jesus Christ lives. This is a reminder we need that God is the one who looks out for us. That in Christ, the believer will be vindicated at the final day. So we have no need to worry. We can have confidence in the Lord and his judgment. But this confidence comes in the face of suffering. You see, this confidence doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes in the face of suffering. Peter acknowledges that suffering does happen. Christian, don't believe what you see on the TV, that if you just have enough faith, your life will be perfect. Suffering is real. It happens. As a matter of fact, we need to reject the devil's notion that when we suffer, God is abandoning us. When we have family troubles, when our marriage isn't what it should be, when our children aren't who they should be, 
when we're ill, when our job isn't going perfectly. That is not God disowning us. It is God owning us, Hebrews 12 says. It is the work of a father fashioning a son and a daughter after the image of his son. You must remember that suffering is not your fault. Suffering comes to you not simply because you have made bad choices or because you're lost in some sin. No, suffering comes to us from others as a part of the sinful world that we live in. And this should not surprise us. You've heard the saying many times, the servant is not above his master. Experiencing suffering and having confidence in the Lord in the midst of that suffering makes us more like Jesus. Because isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Peter reminded us of that at the end of chapter 2, didn't he? He said, when he was threatened, he did not threaten in return. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. But he what? Entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Confidence in the midst of suffering makes us more like Jesus. It is a sign that we are united to Jesus. So we can have confidence in the face of suffering, for suffering doesn't make us any less a child of God. We can also have confidence in the blessing that God gives to us. Because God is our judge, it is His determination that matters. We need to stop focusing on other people's judgments and to have confidence in the Lord. This season, not exactly December, but what is now going from midsummer through March is a good opportunity. Because any time you watch a politician, you are aware that they are concerned about other people's judgments. Even if they've said something that's true, they're concerned that it might be taken the wrong way. Politicians are constantly watching polls. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because they're in an election. Don't treat the Christian life like an election. At the judgment seat of Christ, Katie will not rise up and vote whether you should go to glory or not. God will make that judgment. So we don't need to be worried about if others think that we don't have it all together. If others think that we ought to just be a little bit more lenient, if others think we're a little too tied up with the Bible and too trusting in God. There's an illustration of this that comes from church history. Some of you may know it. There was a famous uh, theologian named Athanasius who lived in Egypt back when Egypt was actually Christian. And there was a great controversy around who Jesus was. If Jesus was exactly like the Father or very similar to the Father. And Athanasius stood on the biblical truth that Jesus is God. Very God from very God. You know that from our creeds. What you don't know is for a good while, Athanasius had the entire world, it seemed, opposing him. So much so that one of the sayings of church history is Athanasius contra mundum, which is Latin for Athanasius against the world. You see, Athanasius didn't care what others thought. He stood on the scriptures. He stood on the fact that God would vindicate him. 
This is what we're called to do when others come and question, when others come and ask us of the hope that we have within us. We have confidence in the blessing that will come from God. And that blessing comes in God's way. It may not come in the way that others think it. The blessing that God may have for us is that we forever remain a church of about 130. And it is no less a blessing than if we grew to 10,000. You see, God will do things as he does them. Our effect will be felt as we minister in Houston and in Katy if we have confidence in the Lord. Think about our Lord being born. What did Rome think of Jesus Christ? What did Rome think of Bethlehem? Small backwater town. Little baby born in some little inn in some insignificant part of the empire. That was the world's judgment. But God's judgment was that this was an event that would change the universe. You see, we're called to single-mindedness in confidence in the Lord. We are to be zealous. We are to be zealots for God. We're to have that kind of confidence. That kind of single-mindedness does not allow us to worry. It pushes worry out. It doesn't allow it. But how do we go about cultivating this confidence? How do we push back worry? Well, Peter says we are to have faith and do not fear. Have faith and do not fear. He says don't be focused on the threats of others around you. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. What Peter says is, where is your focus when you have opportunities to speak to others of Jesus Christ? Is your focus upon others and your fear of them? Or is your focus upon the Lord and your fear of Him? It's interesting that this verse is a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, where Peter says, Don't have any fear of them and don't be troubled. Peter is constantly taking Old Testament passages and bringing them to our minds. If you have opportunity this afternoon, I encourage you to read Isaiah 8. The first thing you may think of it is it comes right before Isaiah 9, which is a great passage of promise and blessing. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. But chapter 8 isn't exactly a rosy chapter. Chapter 8 involves the kingdom of Judah being afraid to the core of being attacked by Israel and a second kingdom called Aram. They're afraid they're going to get wiped out. They've done the numbers. They've done the analysis. They don't have a big enough army. They don't have enough troops. They don't think they can win this battle. And Isaiah says to them, don't focus on them. Focus on God. And then he turns to that prophecy in chapter 9. That prophecy of the Son is not a cute vignette for Christmas. That that promise of the Son is a promise to take you through the dark nights that go ahead. That in the midst of fear, you can trust God and His promise. Have faith in God and what He does and what He can do. Not in the circumstances that make you afraid. Do you have faith in God's means this morning? Do you trust Him to deliver you? 
This is what you need to do. Judah was afraid. They were tempted to give up. But God was in charge. So God is in charge today of your job, your marriage, your family. Don't be afraid. Have faith. Do you spend some time fearing for our nation? I do at times. I look out and I see what appear to be signs of great disobedience. See signs of great despair. But we are called to have faith in the Lord God. God is in control. And He will take care of us. Have faith. Don't be afraid. Don't focus on their threats. Focus on God. Notice what Peter says. He says, don't be afraid of their, of their fear. Don't be troubled. Don't have any fear of them. But instead, in your hearts, regard Christ, the Lord as holy. God alone should be your fear, Peter says. It reminds us of the words of our Lord himself, doesn't it? Where he said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Be afraid of him who can cast body and soul into hell. You see, we're called to focus upon the Lord, to fear him, to respect him, to make him the Lord of our life. This is something that has comforted saints throughout the ages. You remember this famous quote from the famous missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Stop being afraid of losing stuff. You must repent of that. I must repent of that. Stop being afraid of losing stuff, your reputation, your home, your job. Focus upon the Lord and eternal realities. Make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. The hardship in your life is real, Peter says, but the thing that we need to remember is that Jesus is more real. He is more substantive. That's especially true today. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith today, you must come to Him. You will not be comforted by pictures of a baby in a manger. You will not be comforted by peppy Christmas carols. You will not be comforted by bows and ribbons or eggnog. You must come to the Lord who was born. You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ and make Him Lord of your life. Have faith in Him and fear will be dispelled. Worry will be no more. And what does this do for the Christian? Then It leads to action. It leads to action. We begin to answer and not to be ashamed. To answer and don't be ashamed. Have you ever wondered this when you're thinking about witnessing? That the Bible is not really long on what you're supposed to say when you witness. Right? The Bible doesn't say, and please use these five verses in Romans for the Romans road. The Bible actually does the opposite, doesn't it? It's a little bit uncomfortable, it says. And when others ask you, do not give thought to what you will say because the Spirit will bring it to your mind. Right? Bible's not exactly a how-to book on evangelism. That makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
it would be much easier if there was the epistle of Andrew to the Sicilians, by the way, use this program for evangelism, A, B, C, D. But you know what the Bible is very long on, is very full of? It's full of our attitude and our mind as we have opportunities to share the gospel. You notice that? That's what Peter does here. All of his comments are about how you should be prepared and ready to give an answer, not what the answer should be. Isn't that interesting? That Peter and the Lord begin with our mind and our attitude. Now, what a comfort that is. Because your homework assignment today is not to memorize 68 verses before Christmas Eve. But the Lord tells you that what you are to do is to reshape, by the power of the Spirit, your mind and your attitude. You see, Peter begins there. It's the opposite of where we would begin. It is God's way, not our way. We want the perfect method, and the Lord says, No, I want people who seek me, who are prepared, who are ready in mind and attitude. And that attitude is one of preparedness or ready. Are you ready to give the answer, Peter says? Are you ready and prepared? It's a constant state of vigilance we have. You know, right now is a wonderful season of opportunity for the gospel. You know, it's one of the few times that you can walk into a mall and they're playing a song that speaks of sinners being ransomed from death and hell. You don't get a lot of that on the top 40 station. Have you ever noticed that? You look at some of these old Christmas carols, they're really explicitly biblical. It's a wonderful opportunity if we are ready. And being ready is being ready in mind and attitude. Because it's not just about what we say, it's also about what we do. You see, others watch us. Our opportunity to give a good answer may come as we take out the trash or mow the lawn or do work around the house or drive in traffic or take a lunch break. When others watch and see what we do as the people of God. We must give forethought to this, knowing that opportunities come, we must be ready. You know, it's like this. We, we, I know that we give forethought to eating, don't we? Maybe some of you men don't, but I know all the ladies do, right? Before a big gathering... Most of you ladies get out a piece of paper and you write down everything that's going to be served and maybe even the time it needs to come out. Before you, even if it's only 10 minutes before you start cooking dinner, you start thinking, okay, do I need to thaw out the chicken? Which vegetable will I have? We give forethought to eating. Do you know why? Because we know we're going to eat. We don't say, well, I don't need to think about eating. Maybe I'll eat sometime next February. We know we're going to eat tomorrow. We know we're going to eat several times tomorrow. So we give forethought. We give forethought in our preparation and in our shopping. We take it as a given. So it should be for the Christian. You will have opportunities to tell or show others who Jesus Christ is. Be ready, Peter says. Be prepared. Have that attitude in your mind. It will come along. I will bring it about, the Lord says. We might say it's the main reason that he keeps us around. 
for the building up of his kingdom, for the edifying of the saints, to tell of the gospel. Who are we to be ready for? Well, you need to be ready on the third Thursday of each month when we have official bring your unbeliever to church night and we have cards that we pass out so that everyone can tell the gospel. No. We need to be ready, Peter says, when anyone asks us. That means people you like and people you don't like. People who you think are smarter than you. People who you think could use a little bit more semesters in school. People who are young. People who are old. Men. Women. Americans. Foreigners. We need to be ready to give that answer to anyone, Peter says. We need to be prepared in our mind to do that. And this comes from the single-mindedness that we cultivate in our confidence with God. Well, if that's to being, being ready to giving an answer, then the next question that comes up is, what is the answer? What is the answer? What do I tell others? Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. The word here for defense is in the Greek. It's a word that you all well know, even if you've never learned a word of Greek. It's a word, apology. You just pronounce it with a little bit of a different accent in Greek, apologia. But it's apology. You see, in our day and age, an apology is something between saying you're sorry and an excuse. But that's not what it was in Peter's time. An apology was a formal defense that you made in a law court, saying, this is what is true of me. It was a reasoned defense. It was not off the cuff. It was not emotional. It was something that you would do. And it might cause opposition. If you gave a defense, there was likely to be a prosecutor to say, he's lying. That's not true. That's stupid. Do you feel like that sometimes when you tell others about Jesus? That maybe not in those words, but they're saying, you're lying. You're dumb. Why don't you get with the times? No, we're called to be ready to give that defense. And that defense is about God, not me. Do you notice what he says? Give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, it's about the hope we have, not about who we are. Oftentimes in America, times of testimony go something like this. Well, you know, I was lost in sin, and I needed to do something. And I called upon the Lord, and then I began to change my ways. And then I did this, and then I did that. Awful lot of I, not too much God. But Paul says, I was a sinner. I was the chief of all sinners. I was lost in sin, but God, who is rich in mercy had mercy on me. You see, we're called to give a defense of the hope that we have, and the hope that we have is founded on the Lord. It is a reasonable, understandable hope. You see, it is unbelief that prevents others from having hope. 
If today you have no hope, if that pit in your stomach never goes away, you must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only there that hope is found. It is only there that we can have confidence. This is the answer we have, that we have hope because of the Lord. And how do we give this answer? The first thing that we do is we give it humbly. This is how we give our answer. We give it humbly. Do you notice what he says here? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's often not how we see Christians telling others about Jesus, is it? It's not exactly common fare when the subject of whether or not a crash can be in City Hall. If I could put it to you, I'm not sure that God's really concerned that the manger sits next to Santa Claus and the Hanukkah candle. But what God is concerned about is that you would be humble and winsome in giving others the reason for the hope that's within you. There's a a wonderful benefit here, too. Ladies, do you remember when we spoke a few weeks ago with that difficult command that Peter gave you that you should be women of gentleness, meekness of spirit? Do you know what that means? That means God has especially equipped you to be apologists for the faith. Because you are exemplifying in your everyday life the attitude that Peter wants you to have when you tell others about Jesus. You are cultivating meekness and gentleness. And it comes out not just in your relationship with your husband, but in your relationship with the Lord. I bet you hadn't thought of that. That's far better than having certain specific opportunities to share your faith. It is a lifelong equipping. We're to do it not just humbly, but with an eye toward God. That's who the respect is for. Gentleness and respect. When we tell others of the hope that is within us, it is not to be an attack. Some of you know this from, well, I guess they do it in SEC football and Big 12 football. I know they do it in Big 10. Where they say the best... Defense is a good offense, right? Keep the, keep the other team's offense off the field. That may be good for football. It's not a good way to live the Christian life. We're not called to be offensive and to be on the attack so that this way we don't have to defend ourselves. No. We're called to do it with gentleness and respect. And with a good conscience, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That means that you need to avoid today the devil's accusations. You know them. What if I don't succeed? What if I don't have the answer? What if I don't have enough time? What if my spouse, who is not a Christian, is around? What if I'm busy? What if the pastor doesn't have time to take that phone call? No. You don't need to worry about the devil's accusations and questions because your purpose is to do God's will, not his job. We're called to suffer if that would be God's will rather than to do evil. You see, the Christian life is about 
That is the Christian life. God doesn't ask you to prove everything that he states is true. He does not ask you to be able to prove up and down why the Bible is the most reliable book ever written. He doesn't ask you to study every shred of archaeological evidence in order to say that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He asks you, he commands you to be ready to give a gentle, meek answer for the hope that lies within you. How good our God is. How far easier a task, something we can cultivate every day to be able to explain the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this good answer, this good answer of word and deed. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed give us confidence, that you would give us faith, and that you would show us our answer and strike out all worry and fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.